Chapter Twenty One of Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty One. Alas, how many hours and years have passed since human forms have round this table sat, or lamp or taper on its surface gleamed. Methinks I hear the sound of time long past, still murmuring o'er us in the lofty void of these dark arches, like the lingering voices of those who long within their graves have slept. Aura, a tragedy. While these measures were taking in behalf of Cedric and his companions, the armed men by whom the latter had been seized hurried their captives along towards the place of security, where they intended to imprison them. But darkness came on fast, and the paths of the wood seemed but imperfectly known to the marauders. They were compelled to make several long halts, and once or twice to return on their road to resume the direction which they wished to pursue. The summer morn had dawned upon them, ere they could travel in full assurance that they held the right path. But confidence returned with light, and the cavalcade now moved rapidly forward. Meanwhile, the following dialogue took place between the two leaders of the banditti. "'It is time thou shouldst leave us, Sir Maurice,' said the Templar to de Bracy, "'in order to prepare the second part of thy mystery. Thou art next, thou knowest, to act the knight-deliverer.' "'I have thought better of it,' said de Bracy. "'I will not leave thee till the prize is fairly deposited in front de Boeuf's castle.' There will I appear before the Lady Rowena in mine own shape, and trust that she will set down to the vehemence of my passion, the violence of which I have been guilty. "'And what has made thee change thy plan, de Bracy?' replied the knight Templar. "'That concerns thee nothing,' answered his companion. "'I would hope, however, Sir Knight,' said the Templar, "'that this alteration of measures arises from no suspicion of my honourable meaning, "'such as Fitzurse endeavoured to instil into thee?' "'My thoughts are my own,' answered de Bracy. "'The fiend laughs, they say, when one thief robs another, "'and we know that were he to spit fire and brimstone instead, "'it would never prevent a Templar from following his bent.' "'Or the leader of a free company,' answered the Templar from dreading at the hands of a comrade and friend the injustice he does to all mankind. "'This is unprofitable and perilous recrimination,' answered de Bracy. "'Suffice it to say, I know the morals of the temple order, and I will not give thee the power of cheating me out of the fair prey for which I have run such risks.' "'Pshaw!' replied the Templar. "'What hast thou to fear? Thou knowest the vows of our order.' "'Right well,' said de Bracy, "'and also how they are kept. "'Come, Sir Templar, the laws of gallantry "'have a liberal interpretation in Palestine, "'and this is a case in which I will trust nothing to your conscience.' "'Hear the truth, then,' said the Templar. "'I care not for your blue-eyed beauty. "'There is in that train one who will make me a better mate.' "'What, wouldst thou stoop to the waiting damsel?' said de Bracy. "'No, Sir Knight,' said the Templar haughtily. "'To the waiting woman will I not stoop. "'I have a prize among the captives as lovely as thine own.' "'By the mass thou meanest the fair Jewess,' said de Bracy. "'And if I do,' said Bois-Gilbert, 
Who shall gainsay me? No one that I know, said de Bracy, unless it be your vow of celibacy, or a cheek of conscience for an intrigue with a Jewess. For my vow, said the Templar, our Grand Master hath granted me a dispensation. And for my conscience, a man that has slain three hundred Saracens need not reckon up every little failing like a village girl at her first confession upon Good Friday Eve. Thou knowest best thine own privileges, said de Bracy. Yet I would have sworn thy thought had been more on the old usurer's money-bags than on the black eyes of the daughter. I can admire both, answered the Templar. Besides, the old Jew is but half prize. I must share his spoils with Front de Boeuf, who will not lend us the use of his castle for nothing. I must have something that I can term exclusively my own by this foray of ours, and I have fixed on the lovely Jewess as my peculiar prize. But now thou knowest my drift, thou wilt resume thine own original plan, wilt thou not? Thou hast nothing, thou seest, to fear from my interference. No, replied de Bracy, I will remain beside my prize. What thou sayest is passing true, but I like not the privileges acquired by the dispensation of the Grand Master, and the merit acquired by the slaughter of three hundred Saracens. You have too good a right to a free pardon to render you very scrupulous about peccadilloes. While this dialogue was proceeding, Cedric was endeavouring to wring out of those who guarded him an avowal of their character and purpose. "'You should be Englishmen,' said he. "'And yet, sacred heaven, you prey upon your countrymen as if you were very Normans. You should be my neighbours, and, if so, my friends. For which of my English neighbours have reason to be otherwise? I tell ye, yeomen, that even those among ye who have been branded with outlawry have had from me protection, for I have pitied their miseries, and cursed the oppression of their tyrannic nobles. What then would you have of me? Or in what can this violence serve ye? Ye are worse than brute beasts in your actions, and will you imitate them in their very dumbness? It was in vain that Cedric expostulated with his guards, who had too many good reasons for their silence, to be induced to break it, either by his wrath or his expostulations. They continued to hurry him along, travelling at a very rapid rate, until, at the end of an avenue of huge trees, arose Torquilstone, now the hoary and ancient castle of Reginald Front de Boeuf. It was a fortress of no great size, consisting of a donjon, or large and high square tower, surrounded by buildings of inferior height, which were encircled by an inner courtyard. Around the exterior wall was a deep moat, supplied with water from a neighboring rivulet. Front de Boeuf, whose character placed him often at feud with his enemies, had made considerable additions to the strength of his castle, by building towers upon the outward wall, so as to flank it at every angle. The access, as usual in castles of the period, lay through an arched barbican, or outwork, which was terminated and defended by a small turret at each corner. Cedric no sooner saw the turrets of Front de Boeuf's castle raise their grey and moss-grown battlements, glimmering in the morning sun above the wood by which they were surrounded, than he instantly augured more truly concerning the cause of his misfortune. "'I did injustice,' he said, "'to the thieves and outlaws of these woods, when I supposed such banditti to belong to their bands.' I might as justly have confounded the foxes of these brakes with the ravening wolves of France. 
Tell me, dogs, is it my life or my wealth that your master aims at? Is it too much that two Saxons, myself and the noble Athelstane, should hold land in the country which was once the patrimony of our race? Put us then to death, and complete your tyranny by taking our lives, as you began with our liberties. If the Saxon Cedric cannot rescue England, he is willing to die for her. Tell your tyrannical master, I do only beseech him to dismiss the Lady Rowena in honor and safety. She is a woman, and he need not dread her, and with us will die all who dare fight in her cause. The attendants remained as mute to this address as to the former, and they now stood before the gate of the castle. De Bracy winded his horn three times, and the archers and crossbowmen, who had manned the wall upon seeing their approach, hastened to lower the drawbridge and admit them. The prisoners were compelled by their guards to alight, and were conducted to an apartment where a hasty repast was offered them, of which none but Athelstane felt any inclination to partake. Neither had the descendant of the confessor much time to do justice to the good cheer placed before them, for their guards gave him and Cedric to understand that they were to be imprisoned in a chamber apart from Rowena. Resistance was vain, and they were compelled to follow to a large room, which, rising on clumsy Saxon pillars, resembled those refectories and chapter-houses which may be still seen in the most ancient parts of our most ancient monasteries. The Lady Rowena was next separated from her train, and conducted, with courtesy indeed, but still without consulting her inclination, to a distant apartment. The same alarming distinction was conferred on Rebecca, in spite of her father's entreaties, who offered even money, in this extremity of distress, that she might be permitted to abide with him. "'Base unbeliever,' answered one of his guards, "'when thou hast seen thy lair, thou wilt not wish thy daughter to partake it.' And without further discussion, the old Jew was forcibly dragged off in a different direction from the other prisoners. The domestics, after being carefully searched and disarmed, were confined in another part of the castle, and Rowena was refused even the comfort she might have derived from the attendance of her handmaiden, Elgitha. The apartment in which the Saxon chiefs were confined, for to them we turn our first attention, although at present used as a sort of guard-room, had formerly been the great hall of the castle. It was now abandoned to meaner purposes, because the present lord, among other additions to the convenience, security, and beauty of his baronial residence, had erected a new and noble hall, whose vaulted roof was supported by lighter and more elegant pillars, and fitted up with that higher degree of ornament which the Normans had already introduced into architecture. Cedric paced the apartment, filled with indignant reflections on the past and on the present, while the apathy of his companion served, instead of patience and philosophy, to defend him against everything save the inconvenience of the present moment. And so little did he feel even this last, that he was only from time to time roused to a reply by Cedric's animated and impassioned appeal to him. "'Yes,' said Cedric, half speaking to himself, and half addressing himself to Athelstane, it was in this very hall that my father feasted with Torquil Wolfganger, when he entertained the valiant and unfortunate Harold, then advancing against the Norwegians, who had united themselves to the rebel Tosti. It was in this hall that Harold returned the magnanimous answer to the ambassador of his rebel brother. Oft have I heard my father kindle as he told the tale. 
The envoy of Tosti was admitted, when this ample room could scarce contain the crowd of noble Saxon leaders, who were quaffing the blood-red wine around their monarch. "'I hope,' said Athelstane, somewhat moved by this part of his friend's discourse, "'they will not forget to send us some wine and refactions at noon. We had scarce a breathing space allowed to break our fast, and I never have the benefit of my food when I eat immediately after dismounting from horseback, though the leeches recommend that practice.' Cedric went on with his story, without noticing this interjectional observation of his friend. The envoy of Tosti, he said, moved up the hall, undismayed by the frowning countenances of all around him, until he made his obeisance before the throne of King Harold. What terms, he said, Lord King, hath thy brother Tosti to hope, if he should lay down his arms and crave peace at thy hands? A brother's love, cried the generous Harold, and the fair earldom of Northumberland. But should Tosti accept these terms, continued the envoy, what land shall be assigned to his faithful ally, Hardrada, king of Norway? Seven feet of English ground, answered Harold fiercely, or, as Hardrada is said to be a giant, perhaps we may allow him twelve inches more. The hall rung with acclamations, and cup and horn was filled to the Norwegian, who should be speedily in possession of his English territory. "'I could have pledged him with all my soul,' said Athelstane, "'for my tongue cleaves to my palate.' The baffled envoy, continued Cedric, pursuing with animation his tale, though it interested not the listener, retreated to carry to Tosti and his ally the ominous answer of his injured brother." It was then that the distant towers of York and the bloody streams of the Derwent beheld that direful conflict, in which, after displaying the most undaunted valor, the King of Norway and Tosti both fell, with ten thousand of their bravest followers. Who would have thought that upon the proud day when this battle was won, the very gale which waved the Saxon banners in triumph was filling the Norman sails and impelling them to the fatal shores of Sussex? Who would have thought that Harold, within a few brief days, would himself possess no more of his kingdom than the share which he allotted in his wrath to the Norwegian invader? Who would have thought that you, noble Athelstane, that you, descended of Harold's blood, and that I, whose father was not the worst defender of the Saxon crown, should be prisoners to a vile Norman in the very hall in which our ancestors held such high festival? It is sad enough, replied Athelstane, but I trust they will hold us to a moderate ransom. At any rate, it cannot be their purpose to starve us outright. And yet, although it is high noon, I see no preparations for serving dinner. Look up at the window, noble Cedric, and judge by the sunbeams if it is not on the verge of noon. It may be so, answered Cedric but I cannot look on that stained lattice without its awakening other reflections than those which concern the passing moment or its privations. When that window was wrought, my noble friend, our hardy fathers knew not the art of making glass, or of staining it. The pride of Wolfganger's father brought an artist from Normandy to adorn his hall with this new species of emblazonment that breaks the golden light of God's blessed day into so many fantastic hues." The foreigner came here poor, beggarly, cringing, and subservient, 
ready to doff his cap to the meanest native of the household. He returned, pampered and proud, to tell his rapacious countrymen of the wealth and the simplicity of the Saxon nobles. A folly, O Athelstane, foreboded of old, as well as foreseen, by those descendants of Hengist and his hardy tribes, who retained the simplicity of their manners. We made these strangers our bosom friends, our confidential servants. We borrowed their artists and their arts, and despised the honest simplicity and hardihood with which our brave ancestors supported themselves. And we became enervated by Norman arts long ere we fell under Norman arms. Far better was our homely diet, eaten in peace and liberty, than the luxurious dainties, the love of which hath delivered us as bondsmen to the foreign conqueror. I should, replied Athelstane, hold very humble diet a luxury at present, and it astonishes me, noble Cedric, that you can bear so truly in mind the memory of past deeds, when it appeareth you forget the very hour of dinner. It is time lost, muttered Cedric, apart and impatiently, to speak to him of aught else but that which concerns his appetite. The soul of Hardicanute hath taken possession of him, and he hath no pleasure save to fill, to swill, and to call for more. Alas, said he, looking at Athelstane with compassion, that so dull a spirit should be lodged in so goodly a form. Alas, that such an enterprise as the regeneration of England should turn on a hinge so imperfect. Wedded to Rowena, indeed, her nobler and more generous soul may yet awake the better nature which is torpid within him. Yet how should this be, while Rowena, Athelstane, and I myself, remain the prisoners of this brutal marauder, and have been made so, perhaps from a sense of the dangers which our liberty might bring to the usurped power of his nation? While the Saxon was plunged in these painful reflections, the door of their prison opened, and gave entrance to a sower, holding his white rod of office. This important person advanced into the chamber with a grave pace, followed by four attendants, bearing in a table covered with dishes, the sight and smell of which seemed to be an instant compensation to Athelstane for all the inconvenience he had undergone. The persons who attended on the feast were masked and cloaked. "'What mummery is this?' said Cedric. "'Think you that we are ignorant whose prisoners we are "'when we are in the castle of your master? "'Tell him,' he continued, "'willing to use this opportunity "'to open a negotiation for his freedom. "'Tell your master, Reginald Front de Boeuf, "'that we know no reason he can have "'for withholding our liberty, "'excepting his unlawful desire "'to enrich himself at our expense. "'Tell him that we yield to his rapacity.' as in similar circumstances we should do to that of a literal robber. Let him name the ransom at which he rates our liberty, and it shall be paid, providing the exaction is suited to our means. The sower made no answer, but bowed his head. And tell Sir Reginald Front de Boeuf, said Athelstane, that I send him my mortal defiance, and challenge him to combat with me, on foot or horseback, at any secure place, within eight days after our liberation, which, if he be a true knight, he will not, under these circumstances, venture to refuse or to delay. "'I shall deliver to the knight your defiance,' answered the sower. "'Meanwhile I'll leave you to your food.' The challenge of Athelstane was delivered with no good grace, for a large mouthful, which required the exercise of both jaws at once, 
added to a natural hesitation, considerably damped the effect of the bold defiance it contained. Still, however, his speech was hailed by Cedric as an incontestable token of reviving spirit in his companion, whose previous indifference had begun, notwithstanding his respect for Athelstane's descent, to wear out his patience. But he now cordially shook hands with him, in token of his approbation, and was somewhat grieved when Athelstane observed that he would fight a dozen such men as Front de Boeuf, if, by so doing, he could hasten his departure from a dungeon where they put so much garlic into their pottage. Notwithstanding this intimation of a relapse into the apathy of sensuality, Cedric placed himself opposite to Athelstane, and soon showed that if the distresses of his country could banish the recollection of food while the table was yet uncovered, yet no sooner were the victuals put there than he proved that the appetite of his Saxon ancestors had descended to him, along with their other qualities. The captives had not long enjoyed their refreshment, however, ere their attention was disturbed even from this most serious occupation by the blast of a horn winded before the gate. It was repeated three times, with as much violence as if it had been blown before an enchanted castle by the destined knight, at whose summons halls and towers, barbican and battlement, were to roll off like a morning vapour. The Saxons started from the table, and hastened to the window. But their curiosity was disappointed, for these outlets only looked upon the court of the castle, and the sound came from beyond its precincts. The summons, however, seemed of importance, for a considerable degree of bustle instantly took place in the castle. End of chapter 21